This is the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and today I am going to share with you a conversation that I recorded just recently with Canadian cognitive scientist and philosopher of mind, Paul Thagard. We're going to start off talking about his most recent book. It's called Balance, How It Works and What It Means. And I am reading from the Columbia University Press website here, their page for this book, and they describe it as follows. Living is a balancing act. Ordinary activities like walking, running, or riding a bike require the brain to keep the body in balance. A dancer's poised elegance and a tightrope walker's breathtaking performance are feats of balance. Language abounds with expressions and figures of speech that invoke balance. People fret over work-life balance or try to eat a balanced diet. The concept crops up from politics, checks and balances, the balance of power, balanced budgets, to science, in which ideas of equilibrium are crucial. Why is balance so fundamental, and how do physical and metaphorical balance shed light on each other? Paul Thagard explores the physiological workings and the metaphorical resonance of balance in the brain, the body, and society. He describes the neural mechanisms that keep bodies balanced and explains why their failures can result in nausea, falls, and vertigo. Thagard connects bodily balance with leading ideas in neuroscience, including the nature of consciousness. He analyzes balance metaphors across science, medicine, economics, the arts, and philosophy, showing why some aid understanding, but others are misleading or harmful. Thagard contends that balance is ultimately a matter of making sense in the world. In both literal and metaphorical senses, balance is what enables people to solve the puzzles of life by turning sensory signals or an incongruous comparison into a coherent whole. Bridging philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience, balance shows how an unheralded concept's many meanings illuminate the human condition. Paul Thagard is a distinguished professor emeritus of philosophy at the University of Waterloo, a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, the Cognitive Science Society, and the Association for Psychological Science. His books include The Brain and the Meaning of Life, Natural Philosophy, From Social Brains to Knowledge, Reality, Morality, and Beauty, and Bots and Beasts, What Makes Machines, Animals, and People Smart. So here's my conversation with Paul Thagard. I'm here with Paul Thagard who is a philosopher of mind, and uh, would it be correct to call you a cognitive scientist? Sure. Okay, philosopher of mind and cognitive scientist. Welcome to the Padverb Podcast. Thank you very much. I have been listening to your very long and uh, in-depth conversation with Asher Khan. In fact, I was listening to it just a few minutes ago. I haven't quite gotten to the end, but uh, I think this conversation will probably need to be dialed back a little bit in terms of... Um, the assumptions about what the audience knows, particularly when it comes to computer science. Okay. Uh, but you have many, many books to your credit. Most recently, though, is one called Balance, and I don't have the full title to mind. What's the full title of Balance? The subtitle is How It Works and What It Means. It's got two parts to it, because the How It Works part is how does the brain manage to keep us balanced? when we're walking down the street or when we're doing something more complicated like playing basketball. I mean, balance is really an amazing thing that the brain manages to do. And so the first part of the book is about the neural mechanisms that make that happen. How is it that we get 
uh, information from our eyes, from our body, from our inner ear, and the brain puts it together and tells us when we're balanced. So that's the first part. That's the how it works. The second part is what it means because balance isn't just something that we do physiologically. It's also a really important concept uh, really as a source of metaphors for understanding lots of things in our lives. For example, we worry about life-work balance. We worry about balancing our checkbooks. We worry about having a balanced diet. So I consider both how balance works in the brain to keep us walking and moving around, but also how it enables us to understand lots of really complicated phenomena. So the first part of the book, you talk about uh, how balance works in the brain, but you also talk at great length about the inner ear. And I tried to take in the book as an audio book. And I have to say that that section of the book is pretty tough going in audio format. It's very detailed. Yeah. Well, I think it's, yeah, there, I have a lot of diagrams there. And I didn't know how the person from the, how the audio book would manage to do it, because it really helps to be able to see a configuration of the inner ear to get an idea that you've got this outer part, and then the sound goes in, but then it's got to do lots of different things before we can hear things. But much more invisible than even the, the auditory part of what the ear does is the fact that it's absolutely crucial for balancing. So you have to be able to figure out what are those inner parts in there, and why are they so crucial for sending signals to the brain about what's happening to our body so we can figure out whether we're in balance or not. I got into the whole thing by having a bad case of vertigo. So anybody who's had vertigo knows it's really disturbing because the world goes spinning around. And of course, you know, you're not spinning around, but the ear, inner ear gets messed up. And so it's sending bad signals to the brain, which then thinks either, oh, my head is spinning, which is wrong, or even worse, it decides the room is spinning around. <laughs> uh, and so I was really curious, how does that work? And so that's how I got into the neuroscience of balance, because I wanted to understand why I got vertigo. Well, I, I've never had proper vertigo, but I've certainly had the alcohol-induced variety, and it is most unpleasant. <laughs> well, I was interested in that, too, because I think I've only had that once or twice, mostly when I was young and foolish. <laughs> but it's it, 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 what's really strange, I assumed that what was going on there is that the alcohol was affecting the brain, that somehow it was messing up the brain's interpretation of the room. But it's actually not the case. The alcohol directly affects the inner ear. It basically logs into some of the, the crucial mechanisms there and, and waterlogs them. And so it's the alcohol affecting the inner ear rather than affecting the brain that has alcohol have that nasty effect. <laughs> and it is nasty. Yeah. Um, in addition to the sorts of balance that we and uh, other living things you know, just do. It's, it's a capability and it's, um, you know, it is necessary to move around on two feet. Uh, there's another type of balance, which is simpler, and that is the, the balance of a scale. Mm -hmm. And you compare the two in the book. What's what's the point of the comparison? Well, a lot of our words like balance and, and, and scale even actually come from the mechanical scale. Now, the balance system in our brains is ancient. I mean, it goes back to lizards. It's been around for hundreds of millions of years. But the scale was only invented uh, sometime around uh, four, four or 5,000 years ago, probably in the Indus Valley in India now, or possibly in Egypt, possibly both. Uh, so that was a really wonderful invention. So previously, people could, in fact, sort of weigh things by balancing them in their hands. I mean, you could have a big rock in one hand and a small rock in the other, and you could figure out which one which one is heavier just by the way it feels in your hands. But the uh, ancient Indians or Egyptians figured out a way to turn this into a tool, to turn this into a machine that could 
quite exactly measure the weights of different sorts of things, piece of gold or anything else that was of value. But once they did that, then suddenly there was a new metaphor available. Suddenly it wasn't just this sort of crude idea of weighing things in your hands, but you had this quite precise instrument that where you could weigh different things and you could suddenly think about life as being based on that sort of scale. So the reason I talk about scales a lot is because that's a source metaphor for a lot of the other metaphors that became really important for thinking about nature, for thinking about physics, for thinking about our everyday lives. Well, let's stick with metaphors for a minute because you talk about them uh, at length in the book. Uh, do you know the, the cartoonist Scott Adams? Is he the one who does Dilbert? Yes, he does yeah. Dilbert. He also does, um, it was on Periscope for a while, which is an app I never used, but he, he's sort of a talk show host and a, a thought leader. And one, one rhetorical trick that he has, and I don't know if he's still employing it, but I remember that he employed it to great effect against Sam Harris back like in 2017, uh, is that he rejects the use of metaphor. He says, if, you, if you're reliant on a metaphor to communicate an idea, then you don't really understand the idea. Go ahead and take the time and spell it out literally. And if you can't, then your point is invalid. And people are so used to speaking in metaphors that when you first try to eliminate them from your speech spontaneously, it's very difficult to do. Uh, which, you know, Sam Harris, who's not a stupid guy, demonstrates in, in his conversation with, um, with Scott Adams. Well, Scott Adams is not the first person to try to get rid of metaphor. Plato made fun of it. Uh, despite the fact that he used it all the time. He's got lots of famous metaphors. He talked about Socrates as a midwife, and he talked about our understanding reality as being like being trapped in a cave. Well, so that was really quite disingenuous. I bet you could do the same thing to Scott Adams. I'd love to go through his Dilbert cartoons and find all the metaphors in there because I'm sure he's used <laughs> them too. Uh, here's another case. One of the most brilliant psychologists of the 20th century was Amos Tversky. Uh, and he once was quoted as saying that we shouldn't use metaphors, they're just a cover up. But then Keith Holyoke in his brilliant book about metaphor and poetry points out that that's a metaphor, cover up is a metaphor. <laughs> so he can't even dismiss metaphors without in fact using metaphors. Right. Uh, so I think Scott Adams was probably being at best disingenuous. And at a deeper level, he simply wasn't understanding the nature of reality, the nature of language or the nature of reality. He wasn't understanding that when we use metaphors, it's not just a crutch, it's not misleading. It's often a subtle way of understanding one thing in terms of something else. And it's not asserting a contradiction. Sometimes it can be incredibly illuminating. I'll look, for example, at the greatest metaphors in the history of science. My favorite is natural selection. This is used by Darwin. It became the basis for what's still the center of modern scientific biology. Does nature select? Well, no, nature doesn't select. That's a metaphor. There's not nature isn't isn't a thing. It's not a it's not like human making a selection. Darwin probably got the idea from seeing how breeders work. Now breeders do select. They breed dogs to be bigger or smaller or furrier or darker, or whatever they want. So breeders select, but Darwin realized that he could understand the way that nature works, the way that it produces evolution by talking about natural selection. So this is a, a metaphor, but it's an incredibly profound one that can be spelled out with lots of mathematical exactitude in contemporary biology, but it really was the basis for a, an important revolution in, in, uh, in biology. Or look at science, look at physics, the notion of equilibrium has been used for many hundreds of years. It's really important in physical systems. Nowadays, it's very important in 
it's very important in biology because you talk about equilibrium and ecological systems. So equilibrium, where does that come from? That's that's the scales, that's equal weights. Uh, <laughs> and so there you've got another metaphor that's been absolutely crucial to the history of science. So Scott Adams is just wrong about the role of metaphor and thought. It's, I think, very valuable. It can be used badly. And one of the things that I think is a contribution of my book is I describe how metaphor can be used very badly. So I, I describe metaphors, balanced metaphors, as coming into four categories. I call them strong, weak, bogus, and toxic. So the toxic ones are ones that really cause serious harm. But there's also the strong ones, like I just mentioned, like natural selection and, and physical equilibrium. So what we want to do is be critical, not throw metaphor out altogether. That would be like throwing out half a hemisphere of our brains. Instead, what we want to do is to look critically at them and see whether they're actually helping our understanding or whether they are, uh, in fact, impeding, as they sometimes do. So what Scott Adams should have been done, instead of saying, don't use metaphors, is insisting only use good metaphors and have criteria for what makes up me a good metaphor, which I provide in my book. Well, I think he was mainly using it as a, a rhetorical trick to put his opponent off balance at the beginning of a contentious conversation. Well, it's a cheap trick. Yeah. It's like saying, I want you to talk to me with your eyes closed and while you're holding your nose. I mean, that's just a, it's this shouldn't be part of intelligent discourse. Yeah. Or I, I won't consider anything you say unless you say it in proper E prime, which is to say, eliminate all forms of the verb to be. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's almost as silly. Yeah. yeah. Although I think you've already voiced a point of agreement with Scott Adams, because I, I was looking for a quote from him about metaphor today. And the only one I found was, a good metaphor can make any bad idea sound good, which is to say they can be used badly. I, and they have. And I, I yeah. document lots of cases like that. Uh, I mean, the, the main ones that I had in, the, in my original draft of the book, I couldn't put into the book because the editor said, well, these are just too offensive. Hmm. Uh, because you can easily generate, I'm not going to do it on the air, uh, because I mean, they really are offensive, sexist and racist metaphors, ways in which people talk about women or people of other races, and they use metaphors. And these are just just horrible. I mean, there really are attacks on, on the people that they're describing. And so those are the worst ones I had. But ones that I can talk about are dangerous. And actually, I have a long history of the uh, history of medicine, because medicine started with balanced metaphors. If you go back to the ancient Greeks, they thought that health was a matter of having our humors balanced. That is, our our bile and our phlegm and our blood need to be in balance. So that was a theory of health that dominated for 2,000 years. And it's just wrong. <laughs> There's still some people who try to put it when they're trying to sell products on the web, but it's still wrong. The same thing happened with ancient Chinese medicine, which is based on having a balance between yin and yang. or in ancient Indian mechanism, which is still popular in, among some kinds of alternative medicine sources, that it's a matter of having balance among, I forget what they are, the, but it's the same thing. It's the idea that health is a matter of balance, but these are ideas for which there's no medical basis. The sort of things that are supposed to be balancing, like yin and yang, don't exist as far as we know. And we've got much better theories of why people get sick. We've got infectious diseases, we've got autoimmune diseases, we've got diseases like cancer. So we've got actually really good mechanistic theories of, of uh, hundreds or thousands of different diseases right now. And so when somebody tries to use these balance metaphors to sell nostrums on the web, they're actually causing harm because people aren't getting good treatment. So those are examples of metaphors that I consider toxic. 
So we can come back to metaphors and uh, the notion of balance as, as often as we need to in this conversation, but I, I'd like to move on to artificial intelligence. And to introduce the topic, I'll just say that 10 years ago, I, I've been podcasting since 2006, so well into my second decade of podcasting. And uh, if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, it would have been over Skype, most likely, and nobody would be monitoring it. But now we're on StreamYard and I'm streaming live to YouTube and you know, when you mentioned that some of the, um, the, you know, some of the examples of toxic metaphors that you had in mind were, you know, were too ugly for the book. I was thinking, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said, well, let's hear them anyway. But I don't do that now because I know that the YouTube algorithm is listening in real time and will shut us down if we say anything that, you know, strays from what is considered acceptable speech on YouTube. Uh, and that's, you know, there's so much data being uploaded to YouTube that no crew of human monitors could possibly monitor our speech as effectively as algorithms do. So I'll stop there and let you pick the direction that uh, you'd like to go from there. Well, there's a bunch of interesting directions. Uh, so you're right about big advances in artificial intelligence. I talk about them a lot in a book that I published last year called Bots and Beasts, which is the first systematic comparison of intelligence in machines, humans, and animals. So if people want to get a really good evaluation of current state of artificial intelligence in relation to human intelligence, along with the comparison to animals, I really recommend Bots and Beasts. But the main thing that your question really reminded me of is the book that I'm writing right now. I've actually just sent it off to publishers and it's on misinformation. <laughs> uh, so I was I was interested in your praise of, of YouTube because- That wasn't praise. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So, yeah, so it might have, I don't know if they shut me down if I'd actually use these awful metaphors. I'd rather, I realized afterwards it was better for people to just try to concoct them themselves, which I don't yeah. think they'll have trouble doing. But Twitter lets all sorts of garbage through. I mean, Twitter, I mean, sorry, Twitter does, but YouTube does. And oh, Facebook yeah, it's, it's very capricious in, yeah. in who it uh, hammers and who it doesn't. Yeah, so, but there's just horrible stuff out there. Um, there's misinformation about COVID-19, about climate change about inequality, about conspiracy theories, that's probably the worst. And so these are the things I talk about in my book. And so I think right now, the social media bear a lot of the blame for why misinformation is way worse than it was 20 years ago. The social media weren't there 20, there was still misinformation around. There's been misinformation around, at least since the Trojan horse, uh, and a long way back, I mean, starting I, probably with the book of Genesis, but the uh, whenever that was written. So misinformation has been around, but once the social media became <clears throat> available, then it became way easier for people to spread in both volume and speed much more misinformation than was previous. So I think it would be good if artificial intelligence or other means, including political means, were being used now to do a much better at slowing the rate of misinformation that we have right now because it's killing people. It's killed uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, with connected with COVID, for example, because many people didn't get vaccinated, especially in the United States, where they got convinced by misinformation largely acquired through YouTube and Facebook and, and Twitter that the vaccines were dangerous when they're not, they're actually incredibly successful. So the misinformation there literally killed hundreds of thousands of people. I think the, the possible cost of misinformation from climate change is even greater. Some estimates are there could be 50 million people dying over the next 30 years or so because of heat waves and other kinds of, of natural disasters. Uh, so your question wasn't about misinformation, it was about artificial intelligence, but there I'd, I'd like to see a much better job by both AI and 
political regulation to slow social media down so they can't produce all of this kind of nonsense. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, I recorded a conversation with Sasha Altay, who is a postdoctoral uh, candidate in cognitive science, and he graduated from a prestigious university in France and now studies at Oxford. And he works for the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And his assigned task really is to study misinformation and its effects. And his conclusion is that uh, the, the effects of misinformation are greatly exaggerated because most people won't propagate it for fear of the reputational damage. And even people who do propagate it, it's a small part of their media diet. And the people who are clearly, you know, not dealing with reality and who are propagating misinformation, yeah, they're, they're definitely off track, but they are vastly overrepresented online, largely because they are so vociferous and, uh, you know, just willing to, to transmit a huge volume of information or misinformation more than most people are. But um, yeah, I, I've just recently had a conversation with somebody who claims expertise in this, this very subject area who says the fears are overblown. I think he's simply factually wrong. <laughs> so let me give you some evidence to the contrary. I mean, so there's, there's certainly psychological experiments that show that people don't stop and think when they're trout doing things online. They just pass it on to other people. But as evidence of, of harm, let's go back to COVID. And so why... Did the U.S., for example, have a death rate from COVID that's triple that of Canada? It's partly that Canada has a universal health system, so the general kinds of care. But a lot of part of it was Canada had a very high vaccination rate, much higher than the U.S. And as that's one of the major reasons why the U.S. had this triple death rate compared to Canada, because people picked up their information. And we know how they get their information. They got it from Facebook and, and YouTube. So the idea that it's just sort of a fairly trivial thing, I think, is just not consistent with the evidence about how these sorts of ideas are spreading. So when you said the uh, the death rate was triple in the United States compared to Canada, you're talking per capita. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah Canada has about a ninth the population. <laughs> but on a per capita rate, yeah, it's a, roughly a third. And there are other reasons. Canadians are healthier, but and, have, and we do have universal health care, which helps a lot. That definitely, uh, but, but one clear factor is the much higher vaccination rate because people got good information about vaccines uh, and whereas the U.S. with different kinds of domination by, say, for example, Fox News and and uh, political leaders such as many Republican leaders, uh, people just thought, oh, the vaccinations are dangerous or not helpful. And so vaccination rates is much lower. And that's one of the major reasons why there's a much higher death rate. So, well, I, I know people who are unvaccinated for ideological reasons. They didn't get their information from Fox News. It's, it's a much, um, much more specialized sort of uh, corner of the Internet that dispenses that information well, or misinformation. Uh, yeah, well, there, there's lots of sources. So they may have been I know, I know people here who haven't got vaccinated because they did so-called do your own research, <laughs> where research means looking at YouTube videos suggested by other YouTube videos, which are exactly the same, only more extreme than the last YouTube video that you looked at. And so they got convinced, oh, this is really scary. This is really dangerous. We can't do that. So I have a request in the comments to ask you to comment on the, the notion of consensus reality. I'm not sure what that person means by consensus reality, but uh, I think reality isn't a consensus. I mean, certainly science works with a consensus about what reality is, but it doesn't make the reality. So if you look at 
COVID-19, if you look at climate change, well, climate change is a good example here because there's something like a 98% consensus among people who actually do scientific research that climate change is a serious problem caused by human production of greenhouse gases. Uh, there are lots of people who dispute that on the internet, but among scientists, there is this huge consensus. Does that consensus make for reality? Well, no, the reality is out there. It's independent of our thinking about it. So if by consensus reality, the person means that reality is socially constructed, which is another way people put it, that's just wrong. And there's lots of reasons for seeing that it's, it's not there because people can't construct whatever they want. We weren't able to construct COVID-19 away. It would have been really nice to do that before a million Americans died. It would be really nice to get rid of it now so if we could have a full freedom of movement. Uh, similarly, climate change, it would be really great if we could consensus climate change and global warming away so that we wouldn't face the disasters that are almost certainly coming over the next 20, 30 years, but it doesn't work that way. Good scientists acquire information by interacting with the world. They use lots of sophisticated instruments like thermometers and wind measurements and wastewater measurements. So they've got lots of ways of interacting with the world in systematic, reliable ways. And then they develop good theories and they evaluate those theories in relation to all of the evidence and in relation to opposing theories. And they take into account points of view that disagree with them. And so through a fairly complex process of taking experiments seriously and observations seriously and interaction with the world, then they manage to do that. Um, so I don't think reality is a matter of consensus. It's a matter of reaching consensus by interacting with the world and evaluating your theories in good ways. So I'm told there's a wiki article on consensus reality, but we don't have time to read it right now. So uh, I'd, I'd like to return to artificial intelligence, though. I, I studied the philosophy of mind in graduate school in the mid 90s, and I was mostly reading authors like uh, Jaguan Kim and Terry Horgan and Paul and Patricia Churchland. And, you know, already by that time, uh, people like Marvin Minsky were, you know, sort of the godfathers of the field. And uh, he, he's got a very famous book, um, Society of Mind, which was influential on me. But back at that time, to me, artificial intelligence as a concept was sort of a binary. Uh, if we achieved it, you know, then artificial sentience had been achieved. You know, the term AGI or artificial general intelligence wasn't in my lexicon in the mid 90s, but we did talk of weak and strong AI. Uh, but strong AI was really the only thing that I cared about. Um, and now here we are 30 years later and you know, things which are clearly not conscious have capabilities. They are competent in ways that super competent in, in some ways that are having dramatic effect on how we share information, how we uh, earn a living, you know, how we organize society. And so the, the real, I mean, granted, you know, artificial and general intelligence, should it come about, would be a game changer and would be very interesting. But something which is clearly not AGI or many things which are clearly not AGI are, are still incredibly interesting and incredibly impactful. And I just didn't see that, you know, in, in the mid 90s. Oh, there's been huge advances. I mean, as you probably know, artificial intelligence has had its ups and downs. When mm -hmm. it got started in the 50s, people thought it was only a matter of a decade or two before there'd be computers as smart <laughs> as people. And this is a long time later. Um, so you've got to look at both the wins and the losses. The wins have been huge especially in the last 10 years. So right now, speech processing has become really quite sophisticated. So speech recognition is being used whenever we talk to Alexa or Siri. We've got all sorts of things that are working there. Uh, we've got all sorts of speech generators that are really quite impressive compared to what was possible earlier. But And there's lots of other applications in 
advances in robotics and other areas too. So AI has been a winner in all those respects, but it's still far, far short from artificial general intelligence or, or strong AI. Basically, those two terms mean the same thing. So what I do in my book, Bots and Beasts, is I prepare a report card. I look at all what I think, all the key components of human intelligence, I actually get 20 of them, and I compare human intelligence. Obviously, we can do all these things, use language, be creative, uh, have emotional experiences. These are all part of what it is to be a smart human being and, and look at the best current examples of artificial intelligence and grade them on a, a scale of A to, a to E. And frankly, they, it doesn't do very well. Um, it doesn't do very well if you're interested in really high level intelligence, such as creative use of language uh, or and having all these other kinds of experiences and, and abilities. So AI can do a lot of these things a little bit, but it can't do them nearly the level of humans. Now, I don't have an argument that that's impossible. There are some philosophers like John Searle said that strong AI could never exist. I think those arguments are bad arguments. They're usually based on, on weak thought experiments. Actually, in fact, they're based on, on weaker or bogus analogies, um, metaphors too. But what I think is, is these problems are incredibly hard because we're still trying to figure out how humans manage to be intelligent. And there's been lots of advances in that in cognitive science, but there's still lots of things that we're figuring out how to do. So there, the orientation is really on the brain. How is it that brains do amazing things like come up with new ideas or use language or evaluate situations emotionally? Uh, huge advances in that as well in the last two or three decades. Uh, and I think the situation in philosophy of mind has really shifted. Frankly, it's, I think the Churchlands were right and the other people you mentioned were wrong because the shift has been toward neuroscience. Neuroscience has really made major advances in helping to understand how the brain works, whereas the older, more kind of brain-free philosophy of mind really hasn't gone anywhere. So I think the Churchlands were right. It's the brain that's the real source of our understanding of how minds work. But that doesn't mean we've got it all figured out. Here, I think we're dealing with not a matter of decades, but a matter of centuries to figure out how the most complicated kinds of thinking we do work in relation to brain mechanisms. But there have been major advances. Uh, and of course, a lot of the connections between AI and brains have been quite intense as well. So one of the most successful technologies that's used in artificial intelligence right now, it's what fuels a lot of these speech engines is, is artificial neural networks that are modeled on how the brain works by having billions of billions of connections that are nevertheless can figure out things pretty complicated ways. So there's been a kind of convergence there of a sort between brain science and AI, but both fields have got a long way to go. What would you say to the claim that uh, deep learning is a dead end, that the seemingly miraculous results it has produced are really not worth very much because there still is no understanding whatsoever behind all the uh, statistical, you know, hand-waving, you know, impressive, but ultimately vacuous uh, wordsmithing that these, you know, these big language models trained on enormous data sets are capable of? Well, it's not vacuous because it's extremely effective. It does a lot of well, things. Well, when I say vacuous, I mean, if, if you're talking to GPT-3, you can ask it a question that references something pretty complex, and it's going to come back with an answer that seems relevant to what you're talking about, but it's not really interested in the truth. It's really, it's just finding things which are statistically related to what you've said and which seem like they fit the context. Yeah, you're completely right. The people who want to claim that 
GPT-3 or Google's Lambda are actually intelligent or sentient are just are actually being tricked. And from that point of view, it's a trick, but it's a, an effective trick. And I think it's capturing one aspect of what's involved in having meaningful language. But what it's missing, uh, and this goes back actually to, to John Searle's argument, it, what it's missing is connection with the world because it's just have the statistics. But Searle was wrong about one really fundamental thing. He claimed that AI could never do that. But now we have robots that interact with the world. Now we have driverless cars. These cars don't just drive around using programs that have been put into them. They can actually learn from experience. They can actually learn from interacting with the world and adapt their own concepts. So what I think we would need to have a genuinely intelligent machine is one that combines the linguistic fluency with, with these language processing programs with the ability to interact with the world and learn from it, which already exists in some robots, including driverless cars. So I think AI has got a path forward. It's not being taken because these are separate research programs. So I think the arguments, the philosophical arguments that real AI, strong AI is impossible are, are in fact inadequate because there are already steps in that direction. It's just that the technological problems are astonishing to combine the kinds of sophisticated vision and perceptual apparatus you find in driverless cars with the kind of language processing that you find in GPT-3. But that this is something that could happen not next year or next decade, or maybe even not next century, but still there's very, very interesting work to be there. So again, I think the brain is a good model. So why are brains smart? Well, is it just because it's got a disembodied brain in a vat? No, it's because it's got huge amounts of processing power coming from our 86 billion neurons, but it's also got all sorts of interactions with the world because of senses, including our eyes and our ears, and also our balance, to go back to the original topic, because our bodies are interacting with the world and giving a sense of where we are in the world. So you've got all our senses, including proprioception and pain, and it's feeding into our brain and intersecting, interacting with that huge amount of processing power that's already there. So I, I think brain shows what's wrong with current AI. Brains are both embodied, but they're also, to coin a term that I invented for my book, uh, Natural Philosophy, they're also transbodied. That is, the brains enable us to go beyond the body to come up with really abstract ideas like balance and equilibrium and quantum energy and all these other kinds of things which are an important part of how we understand the world. So brains can both use our bodies, but also go beyond it. And AI right now, doesn't have the capacity to do that. Uh, this will take us a field, and we can just come back uh, if this proves to be a tangent, which I suspect it might. But uh, someone in the chat asks if you are familiar with panpsychism, which I know that you are, and if you think that it's uh, at odds with artificial intelligence. Well, I don't know if it's at odds with artificial intelligence. I think it's at odds with neuroscience. <laughs> so the point of panpsychism is to try to explain consciousness. And the way it does it by is supposing that everything is conscious. And so it really is a big mystery that I think is being solved, how humans with our brains manage to have consciousness. And I frankly, I think the explanation for that is neural. I've got a neural theory of consciousness, which is definitely not the last word, but it's one of several interesting neural theories of consciousness right now. So I think consciousness originates uh, not in rocks or, or cells, but in fact, having lots of neurons interacting with each other. But panpsychism says, oh no, this problem is so hard that the only way we can explain how humans are conscious is to suppose that everything is conscious, every atom or every rock. Well, I think that's just crazy. We have no reason to believe that atoms or rocks or, 
or bacteria are conscious. We've got lots of reason to believe that people are conscious because we have our experiences. We've got pretty good reasons to believe that lots of animals, especially mammals and birds are conscious because they have similar brains to us in lots of ways and they behave in lots of similar ways, such as reacting to pain. So consciousness really demands an explanation. But panpsychism looks in the wrong place. It's really funny how even some serious theories of consciousness actually devolve into a kind of panpsychism. Uh, I've got something I make fun of in uh, in Bots and Beasts that uh, you can, oh no, actually, no, this is in the chapter on consciousness and balance. There's one view that suggests that, well, maybe maybe toilets have a little bit of consciousness. Well, I think any view that thinks that toilets or rocks or atoms have consciousness isn't simply paying attention to the evidence. What you need to be able to do is to come up with a theory of how brains make consciousness, and then we'll have a scientific explanation for it. We already know what are a bunch, what I think are a bunch of the mechanisms for it. Uh, one of them is neural representation. We know pretty well now how not just a single neuron, but whole groups of neurons working together can represent things in the world. So that's that's pretty amazing. We can do that. But we're also getting ideas of how neural representations can combine. So you can get more and more complicated things. You don't just have a concept of a shirt, but a concept of a blue shirt. And so you get more and more complicated experiences built out of that. We also have an idea of how you can have these neural representations competing with each other to get access to a consciousness, which is just a small part of our thinking. So we've got a pretty good idea how competition can take place among neural representations. And I think these three mechanisms, neural representation, binding of neural representations into more complicated ones, and competition among neural representations are actually the key to having a neural explanation of consciousness. To do that, we don't have to have the idiotic panpsychist idea that consciousness applies to much simpler non-neurological entities. So you've mentioned neural representation repeatedly, but um, a difficult question for me to answer, you know, if somebody were to pose it to me is, how can a collection of neurons or a pattern of activity within neurons mean anything? Okay, well, let's start with something really simple. Let's start with one neuron. Mm -hmm. So how can one neuron mean anything? Well, in the simplest possible case, it can do it because it fires in response to things happening in the world. For example, a study at UCLA looking at people who I think were being studied because of epilepsy found that in some of them, they could identify a Jennifer Aniston neuron. Well, what does that mean? It means that when the people were shown pictures of Jennifer Aniston, they could identify specific neurons that would fire in response to that picture. And so it's not far off to say that that neuron is a very limited representation of Aniston. So that's one, how a single neuron can mean. But a single neuron can't mean very much because it can't represent very much. It certainly can't get up to complicated statements as Jennifer Aniston is a movie star. And so that's, how do you get that? And the answer to that is first of all, going to neural representation. So instead of just having one neuron that's firing, imagine what happens when you've got not dozens or thousands, but millions of neurons. Well, there you've got a question of having firing patterns. So you can have a whole bunch of neurons that together have a, have a firing pattern. Think of it by analogy to sports teams. I mean, one, one hockey tape player or basketball player can't do very much, but as part of a team, you can do really complicated things and win games. So winning games is a, is an emergent property of the sports team. 
Similarly, when you've got a bunch of neurons, each of which is firing at a certain rate, you get a really complicated pattern that all the neurons are producing together. And so like the sports team, they have emergent properties. And that's what I think neural meaning is. They can mean more complicated things than just recognizing pictures of a movie star. They can actually deal with concepts like movie and concepts like star, and then combine them into more complicated concepts like movie stars. Yeah, with Jennifer Aniston, I mean, she's a real person. She has a face that can be recognized. So that's, you know, a, a pattern of neural activation that means Jennifer Aniston is remarkable, but it's it's different from the concept of movie star. I mean, you can point to different people and say these are all movie stars, but movie star itself is not a thing in the world that you can point to. It, you know, it's an abstract concept. So Yeah. So the big question is, how do we get these abstractions? Mm -hmm. So I talk about this a lot in my books, Brain, Mind, and Natural Philosophy. Um, so basically, abstractions come by combination. And so take something fairly simple like um, blue and shirt. Once you get to blue shirt, well, but then you can get something even more abstract like colored shirt. Well, how do you get colored? That's by combining the different colors. And so we can describe how it is that neural representations can work together to provide more and more abstract kinds of representations all the way up to things like quantum energy. So I think we've got these really powerful brains that do not just binding of different sorts of representations, but recursion. That means you can have bindings of bindings of bindings of bindings up to a certain limitation until we run out of neurons. But human brains have this capacity in a way that no other animal brains do that enable us to be creative in these ways and put together abstract representations. I think I read this in your book. Um, maybe it's from another source, but I'm pretty sure it's from Bots and Beasts. Uh, you mentioned that humans don't have the largest brains in the animal kingdom. Uh, elephants and whales have brains larger than ours, but we have the largest prefrontal cortexes. What's the, the relevance there? Well, see, see, you've got huge brains, much larger than us in, in, in whales and, and elephants, but what are the, what's most of their brain doing? It's mostly controlling their huge, enormous body systems. Uh, whereas we've got this prefrontal cortex that has these uh, capacities to really do interesting kinds of representation combinations so that we can get language, so that we can get syntax, so we can get compositional meanings. How that came about, we don't really know. It seems that something happened in human brains only about 100,000 years ago that provided the capacity for high-level recursive thought. Uh, and Chomsky thinks it's some kind of genetic mutation, but we don't know what it was. Something happened in human brains so that we got the ability to do this kind of recursive binding of binding of binding, not only for language, but for lots of other things too. We can do the same thing with images. You can make a picture of a picture of a picture of a picture. And so we get these kinds of complicated combinations that humans seem to have acquired the ability to do only fairly recently. So I think that kind of a recursive binding is really the key to human thought. And so the fact that you've got uh, billions of neurons in a cerebellum in a whale, that's pretty useless for anything except keeping its tail moving. But humans got this amazing ability that gave us language and creativity and art and music all in a relatively uh, recent time span. So that's why I think humans are just way more intelligent than any of the animals besides us, even though lots of them are smart in their own ways. I, and, and also it's part of the reason why we're still so much smarter than, than machines, even though artificial intelligence has been banging away on these hard problems for 70 years with really creative people working on it. Well, in defense of whales and dolphins, I would say that most of their brain power is probably not spent you know, moving their tail. It's probably more spent on their echolocation and their social activity. 
Well, no, that's doing those things as well. But but if you actually look where where the where the neurons are, a lot of it's in the cerebellum. Now that doesn't mean that it's irrelevant to intelligence. It turns out one thing I learned from the Balance Project is that a big part of balance is the stuff that's going in our cerebellum that's communicating with our brain stems. And these were thought to previously be dumb parts of our brain, but they're really crucial to balance as a matter of walking down. But then they also provide input into our ability to use balanced metaphors to understand these really complex phenomena. So I didn't mean to diss the, the cerebellum, <laughs> it's important too. But still, the fact that we've got a much larger prefrontal cortex where a lot of these combinations seem to go on. But of course, it's not just the prefrontal cortex because frankly, I think a lot of our intelligence comes from emotion. There used to be an old view called the triune brain that we've got this intelligent brain based on built on top of these reptilian emotions. And that's just all nonsense. What's brilliant about the human brain is it's got this really sophisticated interconnection between cognitive areas and emotional areas. And one of the things that makes us, I think, much smarter than animals is that we're constantly evaluating things. We're constantly figuring out, well, how are we doing? The evaluation comes about because we've got connections between our prefrontal cortex and our amygdala and other areas that are important for, for emotions. And so you're not always not just doing things, you're always thinking, well, how am I doing? And it's the emotional evaluation that plays a big part of human intelligence. It's something you can build into a computer because you can always have another routine that's saying, how am I doing? But it's something that has to be an add-on and people often don't bother to do it because they're just trying to do a particular task. But human beings, we have emotions that are really crucial to our social interactions, but even to our problem solving and more abstract kinds of problems like how do I write a paper or how do I have a good interview? Your emotions are a key part of that intelligence. So the old idea that emotions just get in the way of intelligence is just wrong, psychologically and neurologically. Yeah, I mean, I have a cat sitting on the desk next to me. He is an amazing creature. <laughs> you know, uh, Boston Dynamics, they have these robotic dogs that they've created that have sort of a, a hand at the end of a long neck. And they can, you know, they can program the to dance and do things like that. But more importantly, they can walk around and open doors so they can interact with their environment and they can do it as a team. Like you can have one that has the arm uh, on the neck and one that doesn't. And, you know, one will open the door and the other one will prop it open and, you know, they, they can coordinate. But compared to this cat, they're ridiculously primitive. I mean, th this cat, I can I can and will because he, he wakes me up at night if I leave him inside. I kick him outside and he goes out and he patrols an enormous territory. He sometimes uh, catches and tortures small animals. He identifies rivals. He identifies potential mates. You know, he identifies rivals that should be challenged and those that should be steered clear of. And then he's waiting back here at the door in the morning for food. There, there is no robot in the world that can do what this cat does. He's amazing. That's right. I mean, the Boston Dynamics robots are, are, are quite impressive. I've seen them dancing. Yeah. Uh, but, you're, but this is a, a general characteristic of artificial intelligence. AI programs tend to do one thing quite well. Humans can do lots of things a lot more than the cat, but already you, you described the cat has quite an amazing repertoire. Uh, but humans, it's even greater because we do all these things that can involve not just science, but also music and art and uh, interpersonal relationships. And of course, looking after the cat. <laughs> and so your cat can't take itself to the vet, but you can take the cat to the vet and the vet with years and years of training can do a lot of things that you can as well. So we've got all these abilities because our brains are general purpose intelligence machines and AI, that's not true yet. Yes, and the cat, I mean, he's got this amazing repertoire of uh, activities and competences, but they're all 
they're all motivated by a, a single program, really, which is survive and project my genes into the future. You know, survive and reproduce. And robots don't have that. Let me just jump to the end of uh, Bots and Beasts. Your final chapter in that book is artificial intelligence ethics. What do we really need to be concerned with uh, in this bizarre future that we're navigating into with artificial intelligence? Well, th I think there are, in fact, enormous threats. I don't think they are one that people worry about the most. The idea of a robot apocalypse where the robots conquer humans is something that's going to happen anytime soon. Because I've given lots of arguments why AI is just really inferior to human thought. So that's not an immediate concern. It might be a concern 50 years from now. But there are lots of other problems that AI is already causing us. Problems in privacy, for example, the way in which the Chinese government is using facial recognition and other AI techniques to do a lot of surveillance on people. Uh, problems about uh, automation, people being put out of work. At the moment, I guess that doesn't seem like horrible threat because employment is quite high. But in the long run, there are people who could be put out of work by artificial intelligence. So there are both short-term and long-term worries about AI. So I thought it was wonderful when a few years ago, a whole realm of AI companies and organizations started to put together lists of principles for AI, sometimes 10, sometimes 20. And so it was really good that all these organizations realized that AI was becoming sufficiently advanced that all these ethical problems are being raised. Another one I didn't mention, it's already a key issue is the use of AI by the military producing killer robots. And so all these organizations realized it, but then they all willy-nilly generated a bunch of, of their own principles, most of them which are pretty sensible, but I realized it was a whole hodgepodge. So what I try to do in that chapter is to organize them based on four. And I got these four principles because they're widely used in the field of medical ethics. I used to teach medical ethics, and it's a field that's been in practice for, for quite decades now and got some really good basic ideas developed. And so what I tried to show is that this incredible disorder of 60 or throw sets of principles, well, actually all fall under four. And we can have these four principle ethical principles, principles of beneficence, that is be good to people, uh, non-maleficence, which is a comfortable way of saying do not cause harm, uh, justice, which means be fair. Uh, and so these principles are ones that actually encompass all of the other AI principles. So I tried to give some intellectual order to what seemed to me to be a disordered uh, array of AI principles. But it's wonderful that people who are seriously involved in AI are worried about these questions because they should, because we've got to anticipate these really important issues that are going to become bigger and bigger as AI continues to develop. I think that was a good answer, but it was pretty much from the human perspective. And my concern is that we might develop entities that are not only capable of suffering, but as they're, they'll be as good as at suffering as they are at chess or of uh, pulling patterns out of you know large data sets, which is to say they'll be able to suffer in a way that humans can't. What, what moral duties do we have to potential entities that we might create with advancing AI research? That's a wonderful question. It's definitely something we need to be thinking about now, even though I think it's a long, long time before there will be artificial intelligence entities capable of suffering. Let's start with something a little simpler. What about animals? Should we be concerned about the moral rights of animals? Well, do they suffer? And the answer is clearly yes. I mean, dogs and cats have 
have uh, conscious experiences, they have emotions. And I think that gives us some important obligations toward them. Right now, and if you look at computers, it's not like that at all. For one thing, they don't have bodies. They don't have emotions. And despite the fact that there are now machines that can claim to be conscious, uh, they aren't. <laughs> so it's not there. But could there be conscious, emotional suffering machines in the future? Well, let's think about what it would take. As I said, a big part of emotions and, and obviously suffering for human beings are the bodies we've got. Computers will never have bodies like ours. There'd be absolutely no reason to give them such bodies. And so they're very different from a, a physical point of view. They work off electrical energy rather than biochemical energy. They don't have all the brain parts such as the amygdala and the organs that we've got that lead to us suffering. So actually, I'm not convinced that there will ever be computers that can suffer in it all the way that humans do. Intelligence is a different matter. Obviously, computers are getting smarter and smarter, and they may catch up to us in, who knows, 50 or 100 years. But as far as suffering goes, that is having emotions or having pain sensations, I don't think there's any reason to suppose that they will ever have that kind of capacity for suffering. So it's one of those uh, overpopulation on Mars worries. What, what do you mean by Mars? Uh, I mean, uh, I forget who said it, but worrying about X is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. Uh, there are no humans living on Mars right now. In the near future, maybe a dozen would set foot on the planet. But, <laughs> you know, that's th just not a realistic, immediate worry that there's going to be too many people on Mars. Yeah. So my best guess, based on an understanding of how human emotions work and how human consciousness works is the kind of bodies we have are really important to that. And computers will never have the same kind of bodies as us because why would you give them to them? And so they're not going to experience the same kinds of emotions and, and pain and suffering. So from that point of view, it's not that, yeah, I guess it is kind of like overpopulation on Mars. It's just not going to happen because there's no reason ever to produce that. And we do know that human beings are capable of suffering. So uh, focusing on that in the here and now probably does seem like a good priority. Right. While well, we're capable of suffering a lot if problems like climate change or the robot apocalypse lead to dramatic attacks on the best parts of human living. Well, we've pretty much come to the end of our time together here. I would invite you to craft whatever closing statement you think appropriate. Well, we've covered lots of really interesting topics, starting from balance, how it operates in the human mind, to these really important questions about artificial intelligence. Uh, I'd like to suggest if people find these questions interesting, I write a blog for Psychology Today called Hot Thought that's quite popular and you can find lots of short things. And of course, if you're interested in much more detailed discussions of these things, I've written many books that go into these topics in much more detail. Well, Professor Paul Thagard, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. That was Paul Thagard. And there at the end, the phrase uh, like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. I was a little surprised that Professor Thagard wasn't familiar with it because it is such a, a commonly referenced idea in discussions about artificial intelligence that, well, I just assumed he would be familiar with it. It's one of those things where it's so common that, you know, I was familiar with it, but I didn't know the source. So I looked up the source. I'm reading now from QuoteInvestigator.com. In March of 2015, a conference focused on GPU technology, and that's graphics processing units, was held in San Jose, California. 
The keynote was delivered by computer scientist Andrew Ng, his last name is spelled N-G, who is a former director of the Stanford University AI Lab and a co-founder of the Google Brain Project. Ng contended that discussions of evil killer robots was an unnecessary distraction. The following excerpt has been transcribed from a YouTube video of the address, and unfortunately, the YouTube video is no longer available. Otherwise, I would give this to you in the, uh, the original quote author's actual voice, but I'll have to read it. It reads, I don't see a realistic path for our AI, for our neural networks to become sentient and turn evil. I think we're building more and more intelligent software. That's a great thing. But there's a big difference between intelligence and sentience. And I think our machines are getting more and more intelligent. I don't see them getting sentient. Ng downplayed the danger of autonomous, malevolent AI systems by employing an analogy referring to the futuristic possibility of overpopulation on Mars. Ng said, I don't work on preventing AI from turning evil today because I don't think we can productively make progress on that. So I don't work on preventing AI from turning evil for the same reason that I don't work on the problem of overpopulation on the planet Mars. And he has repeated that analogy in various places, and it's been picked up by other people as well, including Nick Bostrom, and used to the point where some people attribute the quote to Nick Bostrom. But what do you think? Do all of the legitimate concerns around AI right now involve its impact on human beings and human society? Or is there any point in thinking now about what AI might become in the distant future in terms of developing its own goals, its own sentience, its own sense of self, its own priorities? There are people that believe that this is something we can and should be focused on now, and they tend to talk about alignment, which is to say the alignment of the values and goals of future general intelligences and possible super intelligences with human goals and values. They say that there's a vast space of potential types of intelligence and, and the space of types of intelligence that are alignable with human intelligence, which is to say they can be made compatible with our goals and our priorities, is a small small fraction of the total, you know, the space of total possible types of intelligence and the types of intelligence which are actually aligned with our goals, you know, and our priorities, that's an even smaller sliver still of the total space of possible minds. So does it make any sense to worry about that right now when software and, you know, artificially constructed minds, algorithms, models, they're simply not capable of having goals that are not provided to them by their human creators. Well, I think one argument that you could make for saying, yes, this is something we can and should pay attention to in the here and now, well, it would be a reference to the millennium bug. Remember the, uh, the year 2000 problem, where so many computer systems, they kept track of the year, I believe it was in COBOL, you know, in, in programs written in COBOL decades earlier, the year, you know, for various databases that needed to be referenced and updated was a two-digit figure because electronic computing was invented in the 20th century and people just weren't thinking, you know, when they were writing code in the 1960s and 1970s that they had to put four digits in for the year because, well, you know, in, in terms of computing, the year had never been anything but a two-digit figure. You could take the 19 at the beginning for granted. But the software that you're using today is built on top of software that was in use yesterday, last year, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. 
And so there was an enormous push to bring in COBOL programmers from all over the world, really, many of them coming out of retirement to go in and uh, fix, you know, to find and fix all of those instances of a two-digit year and update them to a four-digit year so that, you know, at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve, 1999, all the computers in the world didn't freak out. Well, they didn't freak out. And we don't know, at least I'm not satisfied, that we really know whether it was never that big a deal to begin with or whether the enormous amounts of energy and time and money spent on fixing the problem worked. But that raises the question, what can we do today that is going to have any impact on possibly emergent general intelligence or, you know, deliberately engineered general intelligence that won't exist for another 10, 15, 20, 50, 100, or 500 years? And my answer to that question is, heck if I know. But there are people who have devoted their lives to this question and this project. Uh, the name that comes immediately to mind for me is a guy named Eliezer Yudkowsky. He's somebody whose work in this field I have been following for a couple of decades now. Not super closely, but I've been aware of him and his projects. And he's the co-founder and a research fellow at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, which used to have a different name. I forget what it was. But a lot of his friends and peers and, you know, early contacts were early investors in cryptocurrency. So his work has been showered with very generous support to the point where a few years ago, I heard him in an interview saying that um, for his project, you know, in his institute, money wasn't really an issue. What was an issue was being able to hire enough good people to work on the projects that they were focused on. Not a bad position to be in. But if, if digging in and finding an answer to that question, what can we do right now? to bring future AI into alignment with human goals, priorities, and ethics. If you'd like to hear a conversation along those lines, let us know. You can send me email. My email address is kmo at padverb.com. Or, and this would probably be the better way to go, because it might put you in touch with kindred spirits, participate in our Telegram chat. I don't really know how to tell you to get there, except to just go to the Padverb podcast page on en.padverb.com and scroll down a little bit. You'll see a link to the Telegram channel. All right, that's all for this episode of the Padverb podcast. Thanks to the Padverb team, executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borisov and Elena Voigt, assistant producer Sonia Saw, and Slava Borisov created our theme music. All right, I will be back here one week from today with another conversation. I will talk to you then. Stay well.